0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today's guest is a terrific character actor with over 30 years in the industry, a veteran of more than 70 Hollywood movies and hundreds of episodes of television, Donald Logue is the beloved scene stealer of such movies as Sneakers, Blade, and Zodiac, and TV shows as Grounded for Life, Sons of Anarchy, Vikings, Gotham, and of course, The Great Terriers, which Jed Ayers and I celebrated earlier this year in a full episode Additionally, he was the recipient of the Special Jury Prize for Outstanding Acting at the 2000 Sundance Film Festival for the indie favorite The Dow of Steve. Donal also has quite the passion and talent for writing. In 2021, he co-wrote the brilliant New York Times bestseller Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood, along with his good friend Danny Trejo. Currently hard at work on his next book, Donald has also just been added to the third season of the popular Queen Latifah CBS series, The Equalizer, which I'm so looking forward to checking out. Needless to say, he's a very busy guy, someone I'm honored to have gotten to know after the Terriers episode, who has consistently given me the best film recommendations, a bunch of which we're set to talk about today. Donal, I want to thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how's fall treating you so far?
1: Jen, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, I'm procrastinating. I'm, I'm struggling with a, a book project. Uh, and yes. fall is great. Um, it still feels kind of like summer here. I'm bouncing around a lot. I was just in New York. I'm in LA. I'll probably go to Oregon tomorrow. And um, yeah, I feel great. And this was a great. Um, this was a great opportunity to revisit absolutely my favorite films
2: yeah or at least i
1: i would have to say the genre of films that a lot of the other things that i dearly love like it, the this was the the kind of the tree the tree trunk the abrahamic tree trunk that they came <laughs> from you know so um i'm excited and i'm excited to talk to you about english kitchen sink dramas
0: I am so excited. Yes, I should let everyone know that Donald chose the coolest way to become friends. He asked me for movie recommendations. I remember asking you what kind of movies you liked, and you told me you were a Benders, Malik, and Kitchen Sink drama guy. And I think I mainly just stuck with art, indie, or foreign films from the last 20 or so years that you might right. have missed because you obviously know your stuff. But then I turned to you for Kitchen Sink Drama Rex as well. I was always a big French New Waver, the Italian films of the era. Yeah. But I had some major 60s UK film blind spots. So you sent me a short list, including a few I'd seen like Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and Kess. But there were also two outstanding movies on it that I had not checked out. Billy Liar*. And The Sporting Life, which kind yeah. of sent me down this major kitchen sink drama rabbit hole where you gave me more film ideas and I got really into it. So I was yes. very glad you wanted to talk about your love of these movies here. I think for everybody, I'd love to know, when did you first become a film buff? And when did you fall for these dramas in particular, like the kitchen sink movies? Ooh,
1: I have to say I was I was I. Um... a a really late bloomer when it came to cinema. I mean, we, we, I grew up on the Mexican border, um, in these little towns, Nogales, Arizona, and then Calexico and El Centro, California. And, and it was interesting because my family was back in Ireland in the UK. My parents, um, emigrated here. We all did when I was four. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
1: but I would go back to Ireland and I was shocked because they had, vcrs at that point and they were on the earlier wave of renting films which we weren't into quite yet in the oh, u.s
0: Interesting.
1: and so we were dependent on and we didn't have cable and stuff like that so my film experiences was limited to my film experiences were limited to excuse me um a couple of things at the drive-in theater um you know uh which which were actually cool because I remember a friend of my father's in Arizona, he was like, I'm going to take you to a Western. And I'm like, I don't want to go to a Western. And it was blazing saddles and (laughs) phenomenal film. And then, um, and I had a friend in high school named John Everly who passed away. Amazing guy. And John turned me on to a lot of amazing films and music. And he, he had lived in Bangladesh and all he'd lived around the world and uh, ended up in the desert because his father worked in geothermal. And John had this unbelievable reservoir of taste. So the first thing that John turned me on to that really blew my mind was, and I, I saw this on television, I had to wait to see when I could find it. But it was Lawrence of Arabia.
2: Oh, wow. And
1: so I watched Lawrence of Arabia, which remains like, you know, when you have all those categories of films that I love, like big ticket films I love. Yeah. Uh, or or the kind of like Silence of the Lambs, where Hollywood makes a really phenomenal kind of fulfilling thriller. Or yeah. there, there's different categories, but the David Lean, the Lawrence of Arabia is a film I return to all of the time. And in fact, now my youngest is uh, editing at a post-production house and I'm getting Arlo to watch a lot of films with me to understand the power of cutting cinema.
0: Most famous match cut. With yeah, the exactly. Desert. That's yes. exactly
1: what I showed Arlo the other night. The famous, it is known that you have a peculiar sense of pleasure and it's and, yes. and um, and also things about holding on faces, not always cutting to whoever's talking But basic, basic, basic things and something we'll get into in why I think this style of cinema that exploded in England in the early 60s and had its birth in the late 50s in visual arts and in theater. Mm -hmm. But how um, it finally gave in to this incredibly natural form of storytelling that also highlighted the drama inherent in all of our everyday, because there's no such thing as right an everyday life or problem. Yeah. And it really jumped both feet first into real social issues of pain mm-hmm. pregnancy, broken homes, crime, poverty. And so uh then I had then when I went to college, I had a roommate named Joe Pinacio. Actually, Joe lived next door. Who worked at he was an incredible cinephile and he worked at a video rental store in Boston. And Joe was the one who was like La Dolce Vita, Wings of Desire, Days of Heaven, Badlands. Mm-hmm. And so we have Some this. Some of thing. your
0: favorites. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Berlin Alexander Platz, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, you know.
0: Oh God. Great movie.
1: Fassbinder, you know, so he was really on the edge of of what was great in cinema. And it was interesting because that's exactly, when I was 18 is really when I started doing plays in college and I was terrible. And, but I was so excited by this creative process, but also there was something about it. There was something about 18, 19, 20 year olds replicating adult theater that they had seen somewhere that was, it was this hard barrier to get to something that was truthful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, um, and I think it's interesting. And I think it kind of dovetails into this a little bit because when you have the Lawrence, you know, you have the Lawrence Olivier's of the 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 giants of the English stage and they were so used to playing these, you know, Shakespearean Kings and things like that. Yeah. And all of a sudden there was this explosive theater movement in Britain of this working class new age cinema and theater that was about ordinary people and their lives and this and and it was Olivier who turned to John Osborne and said I want you to write something for me which was became the entertainer
2: amazing
0: film
1: yeah amazing film and an amazing performance and it allowed him to be human in this weird way also presentational in the way he's phenomenally presentational. But and all of these films, there are similarities, but there are also differences. I think Billy Lyre and its escapism and its its escapist fantasy um was obviously different from say Saturday night and Sunday morning. But we can mm-hmm. get into the we can get into the films and the players if you if you want you can lead it. Oh of course. Oh by the way I have to give a shout out to my friend Alexis Smart who uh, this was here in Los Angeles in 1991. And she's like, well, you know, Billy Liar," And I'm like, not familiar. And she's like, you need to familiarize yourself with Billy Liar today. It was done by John Schlesinger and, and Midnight Cowboy was one of my favorite films. So Billy Liar was what turned me on to Tom Courtney and then Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. And then oh, wow. of course, The, the Dresser. Um, but just, just, you know, I appreciate the level of performance and Mm -hmm. up and down the roster you didn't have now in American film, there were things with Brando and James Dean and people where you're watching these films and you're like, man, these people, there are certain actors who are on the cutting edge of something so raw yeah and amazing and new but at the same time going down the depth chart in the cast list there were other people who were kind of locked into a style of acting that they had come up in and they yes did what blew me away about this range in the british new wave of film was that you know it, it the the performances are remarkable from 1 through 50 on the call sheet you know like there was it, it's uh, it you know, and and I believe it has a lot to do with the direction, but also I think the the number and quality of actors that they had in the UK and and yeah. still, um, but uh, but yeah, let's you you lead the way.
0: Okay, well you brought up um, the Americans and what was going on at the time. Have you read The Method yet? No, no. Oh, it's phenomenal. You'll love it. Yeah, so good. But in the video essay hosted by Alicia Malone that's currently on the Criterion channel, she says the official movement went from 1959 to 1962 and kicked off with director Jack Clayton's Room at the Top, which earned actress Simone Signoret an Academy Award. But perhaps even more famous today is the other big 1959 release, via the volatile love triangle film Look Back in Anger from director Tony Richardson Mm. with Richard Burton and Claire Bloom based on the John Osborne play, which I liked much better now in my 40s than the last time I saw it in high school or college. It's very British streetcar named Desire. That's kind of, I guess, what you could compare it to. It has the craziest poster quote of all time of the audience was jolted as if they'd been sitting for two hours in an electric chair. All of the films we're talking about today feature great performances, but Richard Burton in this movie is next level. He has that beautiful Welsh musical voice and he's you know going up and down the the register of notes and it's very intense yeah. along with Lawrence Olivier and Tony Richardson's The Entertainer, which Donald mentioned, it really presents these legends in a new light. So talk to me about this one.
1: My reaction to scripts, films, etc., even books. I'm not I'm not a good um it's hard for me to break them down in an almost academic way where I was like, Oh, you know, in act, two, some people will say things like that act Two, it kind of drags. And I don't think that way. I mean, when I think of look back in anger, I think of it's vicious.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. He's vicious. Mm-hmm. And, and the language is also so beautiful. It's so it's, there are some of there are some monologues that are pulled off that are so technically hard to under. It's so hard to do what Burton did in that film with such like uh, alacrity, and and he's like a machine gun of anger yes. turned into words.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, and I like the
1: fact too that it has <laughs> Yeah, and it also and in a way it lent itself, you can see how it came from theater into film because it wasn't, you know, it, it really, is. you can see, like on a stage, you can see there. And this is something that was established at this time in this British new wave of cinema. And, you know, so in in the 50s, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but this um, I think his name was um, John Blackby, He painted a
0: oh, kitchen yeah. sink. Kitchen sink. Yes. You know, and and it toilets was, and that kind of thing. Yeah, that was And it was thing. like,
1: that is where this is where that world of the English family in a kind of in post-World War II and in the rebuild and through some economic hard times. And um that this is where the stuff goes down and goes around. And so the, it was set mostly in their little flat. And that it also had this element of drama, um, because she's involved in theater.
0: Yes. Yeah. The the best friend of the wife character yeah. played by Claire Bloom. Yes. <laughs> Who has that thing with him where, you know, love and hate are two ends of the they're opposite ends, but there's a little bit of each mixed in. And so she hates this guy so much that, yeah. you know, they end up hooking up and it's yeah. Exactly. Now, Jen,
1: I'm trying to think. Is it from Richard III? Lady oh, yeah. Anne. Lady, Lady Anne, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so it's over the over the corpse of Henry the Sixth. She's staring at the corpse of her husband, and the guy who's the murderous, like the the super finagling, cunning guy who wants that power, manages to seduce her. Mm-hmm. And it's this that the and this is kind of a somewhat antiquated view I think and maybe not super progressive but it's like somewhere in the edge of that kind of repulsion and hate yes there's the invocation of enough emotion that it can also be twisted into Mm -hmm. and and which we see play out repeatedly in these films
0: yes Um, absolutely there's so much anger that it just dovetails right into passion it
1: goes right into passion and it turns out there's a lot of betrayal there's a lot of like I'm your best friend I know intimately how horrible this man has been to you and now I've fallen into Yeah. The, you know, so I, I
0: love how she sends her away and within like the first 12 hours they're hooking up. It's very crazy. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now there might be some element of truth that in powerful emotion comes that kind of, but it's not healthy. No, no. But a lot of this stuff isn't healthy in life, right?
0: No.
2: Like, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, um, Live and
0: learn. Yes.
1: But, you know, look back in anger, I have to say, is the is the one film which even though it's kind of the flag bearing film um, room at the top is the only one I haven't seen of okay. probably the 12 or 15. Um, but look back in anger was the one I've seen. I saw the the longest time ago and I'm trying to remember the details all i re- i just i remember you know this 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 just un. well i can't say it's unchecked because it's this channeled rage
2: mm-hmm, and someone
1: yeah. who is so he's he's working class he's tough but he's so eloquent and he's but he he's he is so he is so vicious and it was the you know and and burton himself was from it, it's interesting. If we want to get into this list of films, there was something I did. Um, most of these films were set in Yorkshire, somewhere in the Midlands. Like there's yeah, something
2: they're usually specific about, about this north.
1: area of England, mm-hmm. this industrial part of the world. Um, somehow, you know, Billy Lyre was Bradford. The Sporting Life was Wakefield. Kess is Barnsley. uh a taste of honey. Salford is the birthplace of Albert Kinney, um, and then w- which Salford is just—it's it, kind of a suburb of Manchester. Um, let's let's see. The Entertainer actually happened on the shore. Yeah, on the north, mm-hmm. and then and then um, look back in Angers, also in the Midlands, and then it. Well, I don't want to. And Saturday night and Sunday morning was Nottingham and so it's in this particular sent this this part of the country where after london had been london was of course the shining star or
2: mm-hmm. maybe even
1: the death star in some ways because it, it cast this shadow on the rest of the country and all of a sudden that became let us shine a light on these pockets of england it happened in a lot of different ways i think um Orwell, Road to Wigan Pierre. You know, there were things like in terms of it, it obviously had to do a lot with politically speaking, a move towards uh the impact of the idea of socialism.
2: Yes.
0: In mm-hmm. English
1: society. And I'm not saying that it wasn't this is we're talking about social realistic art social yes social social realism realism and not socialist realism because yes what i love about these films they're not pedantic in a certain way they're there's certainly a lot of people cussing against the man and what you want to do to guys like us Mm -hmm. and what they try to do to people like us and wage slaves and you know this this um but it was you know at a time where the you know unions are trying to strengthen and the idea of of how to how to bring in this kind of form of English socialism that isn't completely radical, like it, Bolshevism or anything, but it um, but you know it, all these different things are bubbling around in there, and so the heroes are working class people who are struggling. A lot of them work at factories. Yes, um, you know a lot of them bust ass all week. Just to make enough money to blow it at the pub on Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those pub scenes are are, are fairly similar. Um, But, you know, what what was the second film on the list that you were looking to go into?
2: Um,
0: Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Yeah.
1: Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. When did you first see that movie?
0: Oh, wow. Probably like 20 years ago. I think I watched a bunch of these on TCM maybe like high school, college around then they, they had these theme weeks or theme months. I remember once they did like a new wave month and it was incredible. You had to go to the store and get those big eight or nine hour tapes and like hope that the time was going to work and you were going to get all the endings. And some of them I didn't, and I still haven't seen the ending because they're impossible to find. But I remember loneliness, the long distance runner Kess, and look back in anger. I kind of saw, so I'm thinking, Around the same time, they must have played in a TCM theme week, that kind of thing. And yeah, I remember being blown away by it. It also kind of reminded me a lot, even though it was happening a couple years later in a different country, it reminded me of the same feelings of the 400 Blows, even the idea of a young man running. Um, 400 Blows is one of my all-time favorite films, so um, I do remember that, but it had been forever. I was very excited to go back in and rewatch it. I first
1: became aware of Tom Courtney through Billy Lyre, which, which is kind of why I was so impressed by Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, because Billy so Lyre is so different. He has this comedic edge to him, wildly comedic, and yes. he gets to Because he goes into this world of Fantasia, he gets to pretend he's all these different, really delicious characters. And I guess we'll get into Billy Lyre. But, you know, while he's living at home, he's beaten up, he's down and out. He works at an Undertaker's. His parents are completely um, frustrated with him. And he's seemingly hopeless, like this guy with no drive. And... And while they're screaming at him to wake up in the morning because he's late again for work, he's fantasizing about it's a big day for Ambrosia. And he yes. has the
2: fantasy yeah. of
1: leading the tanks, losing a limb in battle, running the country. Mm-hmm. You no, know, he rips off Giving his him power, and then he, he didn't post. Yeah. And then, he, you know, those things where he doesn't post the the calendars that Shadrach's is sending out. And so in his mind, when he's about to get busted for it, his fantasy life takes him to prison where he writes the greatest expose of prison reform ever and comes out and the guards even give him flowers and his face is everywhere on the Sunday times. And, you know, and it's, he's so funny in it. Mm-hmm. And so phenomenal, and he shifts gears so easily that when you go into the loneliness of the long-distance runner, and he's just this hurt kid, it's so bare,
0: and the, yes, the
1: emotions so are spare. yes, you know yeah. his his father died. His father died in a factory accident, which is which is also which is also something that's a theme in this sporting life. So you have these working-class people. Mm-hmm. Working under dangerous conditions who hate their lives. So there's this 70 to 30% split of did they die in a factory accident or did they possibly bring upon their own death because life felt yes. so hopeless? Yeah. And in both cases, they don't mention in the sporting life, but in Billy Liar, I mean, excuse me, in Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, you know, the factory gives his mom 500 quid and it's like, this is. Yep can you please sign the receipt? This is the value of your, this human's life. Yeah. And, and it's such blood money that Colin Smith, Billy, you know, uh, Tom Courtney's character, he burned some of the money. Yes. And, uh, you know, and his, his mom has this new boyfriend, which this is.
0: Fancy man. I love the language in these movies. Yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And with who wants to go buy a TV and. Yeah. And, you know, And so he and he also says in the there's there's voiceover in loneliness of the long distance runner. But it's something about his family have always been on the run, will always be on the run.
0: Yeah. And, trying to run and, from the police. Yes.
1: Trying to run from the police. You know, it was interesting because I was part of the reason why I was drawn to this was I was a really crazy distance runner as a. Um, I
2: know. Yeah. Child,
1: You know, like, you know, 10 miles and 102 and like, you know, and that was my my life and my dream. And I got hit by a car, but it was always in my mind. But later in life, not looking like a runner whatsoever, blah, 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 whatever. I went to a doctor going through some health stuff and my pulse, my heart rate was so low. He's like, this must be wrong. And why is your pulse rate so low? And I said, you know, I ran as a kid a lot. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I mean, like 15 mile training runs and at these crazy ages. And he's like, Mm -hmm. what were you running from? And it always struck me as like, whoa, no one's ever posed it in that that way. But it made me, it felt towards, you know, it made me think, oh, this is tangentially, this ties into loneliness of the long distance runner. He doesn't, one thing that all of these guys know that they don't want and they keep saying they're not going to do and they're not going to have is the life of their brother or their father but of course we all know they're kind of doomed to replicate that. Yes.
0: Incident. Yeah, it's but, that John Hughes thing when you grow up your heart dies. Yes. where you're yeah. going to become your parents even though you tell <laughs> yourself you won't. That kind of thing. Yes.
1: You no. Know, and he and and for him like when his father dies and it's kind of upon his shoulders to be Are you going to just, are you going
2: to the breadwinner
1: or are you going to let this fancy dude come in and, and you're not my dad and they're sharing such cramped, you know, if you can think of those old English situations, there's such cramped living conditions and quarters Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, in a taste of honey, you know, she and her mom have to share a bed together.
0: Yeah. Oh, so I if, loved a taste of honey. I was wondering if we hadn't talked about that. We hadn't I talked I'm about sure. it, but is it okay oh.
1: if, if things go into a bunch of different?
0: Oh yeah, I uh, love that movie. Yeah. Yeah,
1: the movie was phenomenal. Um, yes. Rita, you that
0: was angry young woman for a change.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so brilliant. She's such a phenomenal actress. She really um, is. And there's a lot of crossover because, like Rita, they would, they were picking from this. This group of phenomenal actors, like when they did Dr. Zhivago, when Lean to Dr. Zhivago, he had both Tom Courtney and Rita Tushingham yes. in the cast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, A Taste of Honey. And of Honey,
0: course, Julie Christie.
1: Yes. Yeah. And Julie Christie, who was in Billy Liar, Darling. And yeah. Uh, but you know, Taste of Honey is such a phenomenal It's interesting because, in a way, it becomes my favorite film of this movement.
0: It is one of mine, yeah.
1: I just think because it's from her perspective and the stakes yes, are and so it's so more romantic,
0: and um you're dealing with questions of sexuality and race, and it's yeah, it's just it's
1: a know, little bit different. How, yeah, how bold they were to go into that. Yeah, you know, so she's young. Um she's in a super unhappy relationship with her mother, her father's her Irish father who the mom bad talks is he's now dead or he's certainly been Mm -hmm. out of their lives. And the mom is just scraping by at the edge of her. She's 40 and she's trying to still feel like she can catch a man to save her, to save her. Yes. And, and this poor girl wants some kind of love and she finds it in this, in this sailor who's in town, really Mm -hmm. cool guy. and they have this relationship that results in her pregnancy. And I think the guy would want to be there, but.
0: Oh yeah. Like he gave her a ring and he was, you know, he sorry loved her. Yes, and loved absolutely. Him. And the mom it wasn't, manipulative like some of the other movies Saturday night and Sunday morning when he's like using the one woman for sex but he really wants the younger woman that kind of thing yeah Yeah.
1: although I do think in Saturday night and Sunday morning he cares though yeah he cares about Brenda too Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it's so it's so that's why I mean rarely are things black and white interesting what Mm -hmm. yeah black and white moralism is the least interesting thing no not at all it's not
0: real yeah.
1: It's the farthest from reality. And so um in loneliness of the long distance runner, you know, he's he pulls these, he pulls crimes with his friends. He's doing these things and and he gets popped and he gets sent to a kind of a boys' home prison.
2: Yeah. Out in the country. Borstal. Yeah.
1: A borstal kind of situation set in the country and where his athletic prowess gets him attention.
0: Michael Redgrave, yes. The governor.
1: Michael Redgrave, yeah. Who
0: has no character name. I kept looking. I'm like, am I missing? I know it? it's interesting
1: yeah. that they don't refer what I kind of love, except for Stacy and um Yeah. They don't really refer to people by character mm-hmm. name lunch, which is kind of the way. Life is right, like when yeah. you see the script and every line, someone's like, Ben, I told you.
0: <laughs> ben, when you he were hey, talking ben. to my brother David, and yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's
1: like, oh man, that's just laziness at the keyboard. Um, because it's yeah. not, but and this isn't, you would know a lot more about this, Jen. So he gets this freedom, this ability to run, which has kept him and his family alive. Because they're Mm -hmm. just trying to run. What are the hell are you running from? It actually might be a ticket to some kind of self-esteem. Certainly, Redgrave believes that. They might believe in themselves. We're finally going to have a competition against a proper English public school, like a Harrow-Eaton kind of place.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And he gets in the race. And his main opponent in this race, this young, like, just handsome English. Yes public school kid played by now James Fox. I had to look at yes. and I was like, what happened to James Fox? You know, he became <laughs> an evangelical. He left the industry. He came back in and I'm like, what a radical departure to come back to sexy beast.
0: Yeah, I do that all the, the depraved... time when I watch a movie I'm like what happened to them and then you re, you, you look them up yeah, and figure out his their journey
1: to and... go back yes. to The Depraved Banker and Sexy Beast was like I <laughs> love that kind of stuff. And um you know of course when he's he's running and he beats this kid and then all of those voices and all of the fl- the way the flashbacks play in Billy Liar which is something, I mean, excuse me, in loneliness of the long distance runner, which is something that um that took everything from French
2: mm-hmm. New
1: Wave and from uh from do- Czech documentary style films and things, yeah. but they were like really stretching themselves to go, this is this is so crazily tangential, but there was something that someone told me once about Cezanne when they're talking about the modernist m- movement and painting and the impressionist, like Cezanne was this guy that tried to incorporate the, almost like what was not quite there yet, but the Freudian school of psych- like psychology. And when you're trying to be like, how do I also, instead of just representing, what do I see? How do I represent what's in someone's internal? Mind? Yep. In, in, in cinema, I think, they were really starting to work out how, when, when all of these different disparate voices and images are going through your mind, how do we catch and how do we reflect Mm -hmm. that and capture that? And um, it's something that I think was done with incredible effect and loneliness of the long distance runner. And, and what I love about all these films is as, as you get older or as I started working in the business and I'm like, I'm not every, you know, I'm not going to, what do I say? Like when you hit um, commercial films in Hollywood, at some point they had to have, you know, act three had to be full of hope. Yeah. And the hero has to do this and face up to that and Victor over this. And these films didn't care about any of that. And neither did American films that came later, like Five Easy Pieces, mm-hmm. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, I—I I mean, it was like these are kind of dark, damaged, doomed souls, and they're they're that and that are just shooting the middle finger at society or expectations or anything, and that's yeah. their journey. And. um you know, and I, I, we don't have to give spoilers away for Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. But I would say to anyone who watches this podcast, if you can watch the two together, Billy Liar and Loneliness. And I'm trying to think which one was made first. Do you uh, know?
0: 1962 think, was Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. And Billy Liar was 63. One yep. Okay, so
1: what happened, I think, was loneliness happened, and then Tom Courtney was picked to play um, William Fisher's – he he was picked to play Albert Finney's understudy on the theater production of Billy Lyre. And as the understudy, he won the confidence to be that, oh, you're the guy that should do it in the film.
2: Mm-hmm. And at the
1: time, also younger and more realistic. But Billy Liar came – in fact weirdly enough albert finney played william fisher on the yes. west end
0: yeah
2: right?
1: and then it made me think oh i wonder if the movie the dresser which i think you saw right yes
0: yeah um, you recommended that one too the yeah.
1: dresser happened you know it was like man tom courtney was finney's understudy i know and so oh god they're they're that performance and um those films which aren't English kitchen sink dramas, but at the same time, kind of didn't fall too far from the same tree, right?
0: Yes. No, absolutely. You talking about the three-act structure reminded me of my good friend Jordan Harper just recently got his first tattoo, and he went with the Vonnegut three-symbol explanation of the three-act structure, which is a question mark, an exclamation point, and a period. And uh, so, yeah. These movies kind of fly in the face of that, for sure. I know we don't want to talk too much about spoilers, but what I love is he kind of becomes like the Bartleby, the Scrivener of runners at the end. He makes this stance about uh, what, he, you know, he's not going to be manipulated or is he? Could it set him free or could it pin him down? And I think that's really cool. I love how much you love this movie, though. When I was revisiting Tennis Anyone, there's a really funny scene where, your character, and I should say this is the movie that Donal wrote, directed, produced, starred in, um, sees his buddy played by Kirk Fox, like give this horrible uh, fictional audit- audition for Mike Newell, which I right. know has a personal link for you. And uh, you say later, like, it was so bad. I had to watch Loneliness, the Long Distance Runner just to see what good acting was. Yeah. So Yeah. Just to,
1: just to burn some sage in the room. Yes. Um, you, you look, that movie, the tennis movie was so insanely fly by night and wung together and, um, made it's a on lot the Super- of
0: fun. It's yeah. a
1: lot of fun. It was fun to make a movie and, and, you know, we didn't, you know, we had to, we made it ourselves. We made it for on 35 millimeter for less than $200,000. We had a lot mm-hmm. of crazy locations. It's, a lot of it was like, you can't do that. You can't do that. And and we did, but mm-hmm. it was, um, yeah, it was fun to get that nod in there because, uh, I really, you know, I look back, Tom Courtney didn't have the career that a lot of, you know, obviously Albert Finney, Richard Burton, yes, you know, Richard Harris, these guys ended up on some mm-hmm. English version of a Mount Rushmore of classical actors from the UK, but um
0: yeah, Courtney really did not. I actually, I haven't finished it yet, but when I was prepping for this, I picked up his Better. memoir, Dear uh, Tom. Yeah. Which is letters from home. And it's uh, comprised mainly of letters his mom would write to him every week. And he talks about his childhood and, you know, being the son of dock workers and then going to college and getting into acting. And he regrets not being the best, um, you know, uh, letter writer in return, but it's really moving and it's a good portrait of England and this working class background and what was going on at the time. So I do recommend if anyone is listening, I got this, I want to say like $3 used off uh Amazon. So yeah, would recommend Dear Tom Letters from Home for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um one thing I one thing that I saw again I watched again for this podcast was a movie that is one of my all-time favorites, which is This Sporting Life.
0: Yes, that was one of the first you recommended for me. And, oh, my God, that movie blew me away.
1: And now you have Rachel Roberts, who starred yes. in
0: Saturday. Yes, a Saturday night, Sunday morning with so they, Albert Saturday night, yeah. Sunday
1: morning. She played Brenda, the married woman mm-hmm. who's having an affair with... Albert Finney and then she played the widow who Richard Harris rooms with. So this film is set in Wake in another midlands town. And it's interesting my father mentioned this movie to me because my dad was a rugby player um back in Ireland at a at Terenure College. He played pretty high level of rugby and he would explain to me the difference between rugby league and rugby union and rugby union was more of, um, it was, it was an an amateur sport first and longest. And it was that weird thing where they were like, Oh no, no, it's a gentleman's sport, like proper rugby from the school rugby or Harrow or Eaton. It was like a kind of upper-class kids game. And the people that played rugby league which was its professional dirty cousin was more of the working class kind of thing and you know so uh richard harris plays a rugby league player in this movie who works in a mine Mm -hmm. and athletics is his way out and not just athletics but his particularly violent approach to a fairly violent,
0: yeah the physical manifestation of this angry young man. He isn't just shouting he's violent. Yeah.
1: He's violent. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, in such radical ways, and he's such, you know, she calls him a great ape. And of course, like the poster for the film. Yes.
0: He's hanging like an ape.
1: Yeah. Draped in the doorway. And he's, he's, you know, he's such an amazing performer and he's got, he's just got so much power to him. And, um,
0: he was—he uh, won the award at Cannes for this film. Yeah. Oh, did he? He was um, remarkable.
1: It's its so great. And then, you know, at the beginning, I mean, he even chews gum with a particular kind of rage and focus in this whole thing. And
0: Yes. I love when they do that. Like Michael Keaton did that in yeah. Jackie Brown. And uh, Out of Sight with his Ray Nicolette character, he kind of like is, is playing this, you know, hotshot cop and he's... He's very, he's chewing his gum like that. And so it's fun when they can take actors, take a little something and it just immediately seems to fit and and makes that character click and come to life. Yeah.
1: He's just, he's, he's drilling away in a coal mine and he's chewing with this insane intent and focus. And you're like, man, as an actor, that's acting is incredibly odd. Right. Because. um first of all we always beat beat ourselves up you leave something and you're like why couldn't it have oh man now that i think about that scene it feels so free and it's so flowing and i was so concerned i'm on point with dialogue and it loses and even even when you go back and do additional adr you have to go re-record the dialogue again yeah. if sound problems they're like oh gosh you know the way you were delivering that speech it's so staccato and it's breathy and this and that. And you're like, well, that's so in a weird way, the clean delivery of lines mm-hmm. is what makes post-production easier, but it's the death to what's real, right? The way we yeah. speak and the mm-hmm. rhythms and the breaths. And and so I look at these people and I just think, and there's also this weird thing. It's like it's almost like an athletic competition when they call action and then all of a sudden it's this hyper Awareness that this thing is watching you and you're doing this thing. And somehow in these movies, they all seem to be completely unaware of any of that artifice. It's you're catching them like you're just oh, they happen to have cameras, magical cameras around
0: Yeah, it's like halfway between documentary and Italian neorealism. Like, we're going to get into Kess later, but he's somebody who, just like the neorealists, and Bicycle Thieves was his favorite movie, Um, but, you know, used non-professional actors and just people who were there and kids that were in this area. And, yeah, it just sort of feels just reality a bit more heightened, yeah.
1: Um, But, you know, he... That movie is it's so stunning. It's so. Yeah, I, I just recommend it for anybody. And then that. The, you know, the there's a scene with the spider in it. Yes, and it's so foreboding and so intense. And yet I was like, oh, I bet you Terrence Malick watched. I have a feeling Terrence Malick watched this and was like, oh, I love. The idea of focusing on nature, that nature is going on with its thing in the midst of all of this human psychological tumult. And it's just, I know this is super I'm grasping, but I sometimes I don't think I'm grasping too much. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I had a conversation with someone later when I met them in life, they'd be like, Oh, yeah, that's exactly. I was really inspired by this and that. But that movie is. Friggin' tremendous.
0: Um, yeah, and I love that you mentioned the spider because it reminded me of that Emily Dickinson poem, I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died. Um, so bringing in, yeah. you know, yeah, an insect there at a weird time, for sure. Yeah, and oh, I but know the, we kind yeah, The
1: cut from the spider to what happens is so yes brutal. And what's sad is Rachel Roberts had, God bless her, of incredibly difficult life.
0: Yes, I read that. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, she was married to Rex Harrison and she was alcoholism was a big thing and she couldn't quite get over it. And Mm -hmm. um, she really struggled with alcohol. And she a lot of these people, when you go back through their biographies and stuff, a lot of them died young in this way that was really sad and premature. And, um, you know, about their personal journeys and 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 hers. But, yeah, it was. Partially because I had just read up on what had happened in Rachel Roberts' life. Mm. And then we watched the film and I was watching this thing and I felt like I had all of this insight into a lot of what was really going on in her Mm. and what she could bring to the table in this. But, you know, and there's another Frank goes out and he does a trial for this rugby league team and he sets this ridiculously high number that he demands is his worth and, and it's only because he can't wait to show this woman whose approval he will never really gain
0: no she's still what, hung up on her, her husband who passed away yes right yeah. and she's like she's still shining his, his, his boots yes
1: which which reminded me of like what's it called Span- spanish magic realism like those
0: magical realism yeah magical realism where like there's some
1: woman there's some character who keeps sewing her wedding dress for centuries or you know yeah
0: yeah, exactly um,
1: but so and it it was just it's such it's unrequited powerful like wanting approval like Mm
2: -hmm. something
1: i think all of us as human beings can kind of You're like, oh, man, why am I doing these things in my life? I'm like, oh, I want approval from someone who probably is never going to give it. No,
0: it's another one of those volatile relationships. Watching it um, for the first time, I was reminded of HUD, which I hadn't seen in forever. And so when I watched it again, I watched HUD again with Paul Newman, Patricia Neal, the people listening might not know. It was Martin Ritt who Paul Newman worked with a million times and their dynamic in that movie of him just wanting this woman who works in the house and um, how there's like a flirtation and sometimes she acquiesces and then sometimes he's too much. Like this is kind of, I mean, what I loved about it is it was Paul Newman sort of weaponizing his sexuality and his charm, but in a very scary way by the end of the movie. And this is the angry really scary version of that so if you right. are interested in hud you might want to check out this movie or you might want to watch them back to back well that will be an evening but um but yeah exactly and could
1: they make a film like this again Oof, probably not. Now, no you know there's a lot of this stuff that you watch and you're like holy smokes like we've grown, <laughs> yes we've grown as people and we've grown as attitudes and you know we've, yeah. we've made progress but at the same time it really gets into what is what is at the root of being human and imperfect Mm
2: -hmm. on both sides
1: and it's not just um it's not just that the men are all brutes and completely horrible no everybody has this kind of cycle everybody has their own life Mm -hmm. and um has been our our day our doing everything they can to keep their head above water. And it always yeah. feels like right. Everybody's in a they're in a sinking boat where where the water they've now they have eight inches between themselves and the hull or whatever before. And that's where the and they, they have to
0: climb it. on top of each other sometimes to get there.
1: Yeah. And and uh but that movie was and will always be one of my Super all favorites. And now it rolls into, is this crazy? Is this ham-handed kind of stuff? Um, The Entertainer.
0: I loved that movie. But I do want to actually take it back to Billy Lyre really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind. Um, no, please. When you I watched got, it, it was new to it. me. And um I zeroed right in on the movie's ending, which is so bold and uncompromising. Oh, shows yeah. That, again, spoiler, but this man will probably never change and um I remember when I replied to you like to tell you how much I enjoyed it I just zeroed right in on it not knowing that was what you loved the most about it and you yeah. were comparing it to me uh to the Dow of Steve. Do you want to yeah. talk about that one?
1: So so we can we can kind of spoil stuff a little yeah bit. yeah Let's take away from when we were doing the Dow Steve, there's a scene at the end where, this guy who's a big fish and a bright guy in a small pond you know he um who fancies himself a creative guy and and philosophical. Yes. And, and something I can re- I understand a ton being from small towns and knowing a lot of people and knowing a lot of brilliant people from my small towns yeah. and it's like you're that that anger of like the world's never gonna understand my level of genius and the world's unfair and it's like Yes and no and yes and kind of no. And, you know, I always felt that um, the character of Dex is kind of like this William Fisher. William yeah. Fisher is undeniably talented. He's undeniably clever. He's funny. And there is even a nod in the movie where after him lying all the time about his fake script writing job or this or that, actually a song that's kind of cool that he wrote with his friend is yes. played live. Yeah. And he can tell Julie Christie, oh, Twisterella, this is my song, you know? Yeah. And um, so that the world does see some value potentially in this guy. I know. But, but when Julie Christie rolls back to town, the one who left the hard town, the small town, and said, there's a world out there. You just yes. have to go and come with me. And he had it's all set up for him. And he sabotages the hell out of it because he just can't.
0: Yeah. He is his own worst enemy for sure.
1: He he can't. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the Dow of Steve, I was like, you know, Jennifer, let's watch Billy liar. Because like at the end of the movie where Julie Christie is kind of like Greer, Steve is like, come to New York and be with me. Come to London. We can do this. Let's take the midnight train. He comes up with this excuse like oh i have to get milk for the sandwiches yeah you're like oh dude and she knows second she does
0: what i love is julie christie is the only one of the women who who has his number because she's you know dealt with him in the past yes
1: and but she also loves and sees that yeah she
0: wants him to um, yeah yeah Yeah.
1: and that was that was a brutal rewatch in a way because you're like, oh, man, the sexist attitudes of that time, you know, where Danny Boone is opening up the supermarket and he's like, was well, it pretty girl in the audience? You know,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: You
1: know, all these fawning older ladies like you, you
0: there in the brown the and Spanish like, fly type thing he's trying to do with his girlfriend. And he has two different women. He's sort of leading off. I love he takes a ring from one and gives to the other. Wow. And yes.
1: those two women are phenomenal. Oh, they God. are. Yeah. Rita yeah. and
0: Barbara.
2: Yes. And when
1: they finally face off at the dance, at, at the dance hall, it's like.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, my
1: gosh. Oh, my God. But that, but Billy Lyre is so phenomenal. And I thought the ending was so beautiful. And, um, yeah, I just, and and another thing about Billy Lyre that was fantastic up and down was everybody's, everybody's performance was Mr. Shadrach was amazing. And so many of these people are asked to play a part also in his fantasy sequences, like his mother and yes. father.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they can go from just being like. Dour. Class and angry. Yeah, and then yeah. they're like, oh, Billy's pissed again. How dreary. You know, like. That. Yeah, the just fantastical
0: the versions. Yes.
1: The fantastical version. And you're like, wow, these they're so adept at playing, of course, because they're just good actors.
2: Yeah. And and it's
1: it it's yeah, it, it it's so wildly creative. And, um you know, in my, I don't like when I look at my career, I just think I'm a fan of this kind of world of mm-hmm. films, et cetera. Like, how do I get the lowest level ability together just so I can be a fly on the wall? <laughs> While this stuff is being made, you know, and and I had a small part in this John Schlesinger movie, Eye for an Eye. Yes. I wanted it so badly because I just wanted to be, is he kind? Is he cool?
0: Yeah, because you, know, you and I and, bonded be... a little bit over Falcon and the Snowman and some of the other oh, Schlesingers. And
1: yeah. yes. Oh, he's so amazing. And he was all of the above. And he was so loving and he was so generous of his time. And he talked to me about the Falcon and the Snowman. and. and Um, so much about Midnight Cowboy and how difficult it was getting the film rolled out, but also just how wild it was, and and um, just how oh man. And then I got to talk to him about you know Billy Lyre and and Darling and things like that. That I which was which was a phenomenal treat because I and I think for him too, in a weird way. I'm not saying, man, he was, how lucky he was that I rolled into his life.
0: To- <laughs> no, no, but it was you know, probably not. But, nice but that Nora. he was like,
1: oh, wow, that this young kind of American guy grew up in the desert and was watching my stuff. Yeah. And they had that impact, universal appeal. Yeah. That universal appeal, you know. Um, but Billy yeah. Lyre is, uh, Man, what a tremendous so
0: good. Yeah. And so, uh, to kind of finish up, I know I kind of led you down an interesting path there. But yeah, the ending of Dow, Steve, you were hoping would be more like Billy Liar. And it yeah. wound up going with the, the Yeah, he shows up in New York to me. Yeah.
1: Like, yeah, I'm here. And I was like, This dude's never gonna leave Santa mm-hmm. Fe, ever. He no. would it wouldn't, you know, he would feel cold and alone in a big city and incapable of, you know, it's like being
0: that big fish or being able to navigate his surroundings and it's comfortable and familiar. And uh, yeah, I can see the link. I it was interesting after you mentioned that. I started to think closer. I actually have related to somebody who isn't at the level of Billy Lyre, but who is very much like an a master storyteller and you know, super charming. And the first time you meet him, like my friends are all like, oh my God, he's the most charismatic. And and then you hang out with him a few more times and you're like, these stories aren't really real, are they? And so what I love is it kind of reminds me of that David Mamet movie, State in Maine. You know, it's not a lie, it's a gift for fiction. And that's what Billy has in this uh, film. He wrote a great song, Twisterella, And I love that Julie Christie at first is like, for real? And then you do hear that it is legit. He actually did. So if he applied himself and used these lies as fiction, because the level of just beauty and creativity and ambrosia and the fantasy yeah. world, I mean, you know, the sky would be the limit for this guy. But he yeah, the in thing, his own it's, way.
1: It's absurd to think that he could write scripts. Yes. For Danny Boone. And Danny Boone is like, oh, you, you know, it's clear that that never that he's like, no, I sent him my material, and he wants my material. And then, of course, you're watching this going, Billy Fisher is 700 times funnier and more clever than the famous guy Danny Boone. But the way the world works is it's never going to be seen that way. But there are people I know who I'm just like, look, I'm not, you know, your well is deep, and you're incredibly clever, and your mind is phenomenal. But The big city is cold in a way that if you can't deal with the rejection that's going to come, you can't even wander into it because it's going to come. Yeah. And, you know, there's a world full of people wandering to big cities and getting turned down for jobs that they feel are kind of beneath them. And I'm like, no one's going to read your, no one, it they can't telepathically understand that you wrote this thesis on Joyce that was brilliant or, you know, like it doesn't translate. And you have to go and fight in this arena in front of a lot of people. And you you have have to to do the work and you have to be willing to fail and be humiliated. And if you're not, if you, if you want to be comfortable, stay in the Harbor, wherever Harbor you're in, but ships weren't built, you know, ships are built to sail, but the open seas are rough. And um, but I, I I found that I found that phenomenal. That film reminded me of so many people. And what I do think is incredible is um, absolutely one of the most unique. And I would say artistically unappre- i wouldn't say artistically unappreciated—because of the Dow of Steve. But there's a guy, Duncan North, who it was based on. Yes. And Duncan is that dude in Santa Fe, and he is brilliant. I mean, he's brilliant. His his understanding of the canon, I would besides the canon, but I he his mind. I, I've rarely encountered such a mind as Duncan North. And, you know, after the Dow of Steve, he had some they were going to do maybe a Dow of Steve television series, or he was going to write some other things. And um, and it just became kind of hard.
2: Mm. And we
1: talked about it, you know, like. He's got a kind of good situation in Santa Fe, but man, yeah, like it gets cold when you try to move to New York or L.A., even with a calling card, the kind of calling card that the Dow of Steve was after mm-hmm. it came out in Sundance and had a kind of a good run as an indie film. But um, yeah, Duncan reminded me a lot of of Billy Fisher and
2: yeah.
0: No, what you're talking about of it reminding you of so many people, it's kind of that thing where when you go to a good college or something, and you might have been the top person at your school, but then you get there and so was everybody else. And it's kind of a a moment where you have to realize, oh, wait, I actually have to work a little bit harder, that kind of thing. But talking about um, be willing to fail reminded me of something Macon Blair just shared on Twitter recently. Um, great actor. He in Blue Ruin and also a filmmaker. And he was talking about Louise Fletcher and meeting her at a funeral of all places. Um, and I think his dad introduced them and uh, said, you know, he wants to be an actor. And she said to him, do you like to fail? And he said, no, you have to love to fail to be yeah. an actor. And it's kind of reminded me of what you were talking about. It's amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: Also, not only from but not only from the auditioning process but just in the middle of a scene yeah and and the thing is with actors i remember there was this one director i got cast in this thing and i met the guy who i was going to be playing best friends with and we started talking about our kids we immediately started kind of jumping into this bonding pool thing mm-hmm. and the guy was like focus focus we're here to work and i'm like this is work dude
0: yeah building that because
1: relationship and I, Because tomorrow we're pretending like we're best friends for life. Yeah. And on top of that, what we're doing is we're doing this little dance to be like, can I feel comfortable failing in front of you? And can I make you feel comfortable to know it's okay to fail in front of me? You have to be that. I'm not looking at someone in the middle of a scene, whether we're playing best friends or laughing or whatever. And I'm like, I'm looking at kind of an antagonist yeah that's playing not that that fights against what we're supposed to be and sometimes it happens i think it happens rarely i don't think i remember doing Vikings one time someone said oh when you have to do these things with like you want ragnar dead and you want to be his enemy and da 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 do you and travis just start like do you, do, you, do you get start cold shouldering people on? I'm like, that is the most useless. And the opposite is true because you have to know if you're going to jump in dark stuff with somebody, you've got to be close to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I do think there are some stories of people doing that kind of thing of not liking somebody and then pretending that it was for the benefit of the piece, which is never the case.
2: Yeah. It's just...
0: Or I was just thinking about ordinary people and the stories of Redford telling Mary uh, Tyler Moore, like you know, don't really give Timothy Hutton a lot of attention. So the whole movie, while they were making it, Timothy Hutton just thought she hated him because she never went over and talked to him. And then you know they finish, and then she's warm and nice, and and he realized, oh, oh, she, oh she was playing,
2: cool.
0: yeah, she was playing the mother essentially. <laughs> yes.
2: Oh. <laughs> Yeah,
0: wow. no. Well, would be whatever hard, it did
2: I mean?
1: Timothy Hutton's performance.
0: I mean, Timothy he won the Oscar. Yeah, but, but can you so imagine phenomenal. going to the set every day and thinking she hates no, you? No, like,
1: I couldn't imagine, and no. it feels to me. I mean, he was so young at the that's, time. That's that's
0: the thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's but hard. it's
1: manipulative in a way I think that really is unnecessary and doesn't work because Mary Tyler Moore's so talented that I yeah. think that. You can do something in the scene, but there's a pic. There's a scene in ordinary people when they're trying to take the family photo. That's so.
0: Oh my God! Yes. Just take
1: it. It's so brutally uncomfortable, and it was like I think a lot of people could go. "Mm, I I recognize that. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Um, Yeah.
2: Wow! What a film.
0: Well, next we should probably get on to another one of your favorite movies. Donald has quite the poster collection. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And he has why are you sorry?
1: Organized. And I float so much.
0: Inter- no, it's good. Oh, yeah. But uh yeah, let's get into Kess, which I know is a movie that oh. means so much to you. You have oh, God, a yeah. gorgeous French poster of it.
1: Yeah, Kess is
0: um Kess
1: is Kess should be required viewing for um For what do you think? Everybody on planet Earth? Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. I think to show empathy and just humanity and yeah, it's kind of got that where the red fern grows type thing that they, they put you through as kids, but this is more real. And uh, yeah. yeah.
1: It's on so many levels. Um, I will say a couple, there are a couple of things that draw me to, English cinema of the 60s in this weird way, my parents lived, my parents after they married in Nigeria, they lived in Leicester, England, where my oldest sister was born. And um, they moved to London. And I was conceived in London with my twin sister, which was something I had to try and wrench from my mom recently because I was just interested in my own weird journey.
0: Yeah. You were telling me the different places, yeah. like conceived here, lived here. Yeah. Moved and then they here. went
1: to, um, they went back to Ireland to visit family and then sailed to Canada. Montreal and Ottawa where we were born. And then quickly we're like, man, too much. I don't know if it was just freezing Canada winters or whatever, but you know, like after two winters, they went back to England and Ireland with The three of us kids Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: my first memories are, you know, pretty clear of England in the late, late 60s and and Ireland. And then we went back every year and always would stay in Leicester and in Luton and London and North London with my Auntie Joan. And I actually went to high school for a spell in North London in And now in 1982, it felt very still, almost Dickensian in this kind of weird way, like Mm -hmm. still people standing around burning bonfires under um, Waterloo Bridge. And, you know, you would have to put a little two p piece in the meter to get heat in your room or go to public baths. And um, so anyway, I have this love. I have this love and this yearning for that time that when I started watching these films, it. Remind, it felt felt like in a way, but certainly not my, I'm not, that was my upbringing or, but, um, and, and school. And so this, this, and this film, this kid, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I've seen precocious performances by children. Yeah. I mean, I've seen those where. I've seen it where it's I've worked out my fun cute thing and my mom is yeah, yeah. Me or whatever, And I don't, but then I and I've kids can be brilliant and honest in a way that's
2: almost yes. impossible
1: for adults to be. But this particular kid, the rhythm he was doing whatever whatever drum he is the beat to which he is dancing is so specific and unique and phenomenal. So he's this, he's this lost kind of kid is. No dad around. Is his father has his father died in the same way or is it ever clear or is it um, I don't know
0: if it's clear. I gotta be honest. Um, just either just not in the picture anyway. Yeah,
1: I mean, I feel like Kess is a poem that I've watched a number or read a number of times, but haven't focused like it's on this spe- it, yes, it feels like a dream t- instead of the specificity. So, you know, same kind of thing, like mom is Mom's absentee, absentee um, single yeah, mom who's off to she looks forward to the pub night. The pub night is also like the older brother who works
0: in the mine, in yeah. the
1: mine, you know, and is like, You're going to be working there. And he's like, I'm never going to be that kind of yeah, working there. That thing, although he doesn't say, about. It, Yeah, it's not in the same way, though, right? It's so different. He, he's this kid is so unlike loneliness of the long distance runner. This kid no. is. He's just in his own dream world. He, he's he got a kind of natural larceny that comes to him, but it's very different than...
0: I know. I When I was watching it this time, um, you know, the scene where he, we should probably tell people, he uh, gets a kestrel out of a nest and then wants to learn falconry and he goes to the library and he needs to have adult supervision to... Um, get a card and you know like a signature and he can't do it so he goes to the bookstore and he steals a book and just how much the book kind of helps set him free and you think about knowledge that way and how it makes all the kids light up and the one teacher who's nice and like about it
1: yeah, I yes. mean, otherwise, this
0: kid's going to school
1: and he's getting his ass kicked, and he's dirty, yeah. and he's different, and he's poor, and it's not something that there's any sympathy towards. It's just no. like you're, you're effed up and you're wrong, and there's a narcissistic. Yeah, there's this dickhead PE teacher. Oh my god, and, uh, you know, and then then this kid talks about falconry and what he's done with this. And he certainly doesn't present it like, I've got something special to share. No,
0: it's so earnest,
2: though. It's so
1: earnest. And they call him and they just say, like, what what are you talking about? And what's this? And he goes, well, I do this and I do that. I have this style where I put meat on my, you know, and but when you okay, so this is where you get into. I worked on something recently where there were children that they brought in his background and not these children's fault whatsoever, but the ADs were quickly saying, when this thing happens, it's really blowing your mind. So you look at it and your mind's blown. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? There's no way this isn't (laughs) going to look awkward. And it's not their fault. No, they're on the hook. They feel scared. So they're trying to time something out. They're throwing an, an unrealistic reaction because never underestimate the power Of someone just looking at something and the wheels turning behind their eyes. Yeah,
0: an honest reaction. Yeah. The scene where this
1: kid's talking in class about training his kestrel is one of the most beautiful scenes. And the faces of all these kids who are like, This, they're interested. They want to hear more. This is fascinating. And the teacher who puts interest in him and actually when you know instead of when you know like so how many times i can think of when i was in a fight in school growing up and it was a gnarly situation where someone's been like someone's coming after you every day and they're like mm-hmm. after school i'm kicking your ass behind the gym or whatever and you're finally like i'm i'm either going to have to swing fists or i'm sinking for the rest of my life and then a teacher comes up and you're both in trouble and what did you do to provoke this and you're like, man, the world don't work that way. And this teacher who steps in and intervenes and, and, and takes care in this kid and then actually goes to visit him when he's training his to see what he's doing with the falconry. And is like, you're kind of valuable. You're kind of worth it. And yet this thing, so, that,
2: yeah, this that's...
1: tragedy that happens. And um, again, all the performance is great. This is a spectacular movie. It's absolutely one of my favorite films of all time. Um, but yeah,
0: that, that scene, I just, I think it's so important to, to when you hear kids talk about what they're passionate about, like um, actually this spring, Chris Cantwell, who did Halt and Catch Fire, uh, he brought his kid here for spring training because the kid is obsessed with uh, baseball, and so I went over and had breakfast with them. And in uh, at breakfast, he was telling me everything about all the players, and uh, and it was just really cool to hear, you know, a kid be so passionate about everything. And I said, you know, you know a lot about baseball. And his mom, Elizabeth, who is like a poet and a PhD and just one of the smartest people ever, he's like. Well, my mom knows a lot about everything, but I know the most about baseball, and I just I thought that was beautiful. But one yeah. thing I and love it's about it's also
1: beautiful like you go to where you go to where your kids are. Yes. When your kids show an interest in something, you don't you try have to and support say, it. Yeah. I want you. To, uh, it's not whatever it is. You're like I want to hear about it. I'm interested in this. I yeah. I, uh,
0: It's yes, and use that improv thing, like support it. Yes, yes
1: and. and. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But man, wow, that was a beautiful. um, There are two examples of, I think that directors, but not necessarily directors, it is directors, but there's some kind of weird thing in American union filmmaking where uh, background artists have to be directed by assistant directors yes and so sometimes i had a friend who did a film i guess it's the same everywhere but he did a film where the end of the movie is like armistice you know the german surrender the war is over this hell is done and and you can see this and so at the end, everybody goes, yay, and throws their hats up at the air at the same time. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I said, what the hell happened, dude? Did some, in, in this case, in English, did, was some AD like,
2: all right. On the count of three. Action,
1: one, yes. two, three. Yay, hats in the air. Yes. German surrendered. Let's roll. And I, he goes, that's exactly what happened. And I'm like, how do they think that people aren't going to do exactly that? Like, and when you watch, it's so hard to know sometimes from the viewer's perspective, but when you're watching things and you're, you're constantly being the psychological energy of the scene, isn't moving in the same direction and it's just Mm -hmm. distracting or disjointed. Like if you watch a movie, like um, what was the green grasses movie about Northern Ireland, Sunday, bloody Sunday, or just. um,
2: Yeah, it was.
0: Let me see. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Is it just Bloody Sunday? Let me think. Bloody
1: Sunday from 2002. I'm so sorry to say. um, So uh, Bloody Sunday, if you look, if you could freeze something and go 1,000 faces deep on a scene, all you see is 100% in that moment commitment. And it makes such a phenomenal difference. Mm -hmm. But I was blown away by Kess by that scene. And just to trust that if you're telling someone something, if they're listening, it's enough. Genuine. And it's too so hard as an actor, even for me, to be like, trust it, dude. If you're listening, it's enough. Yeah. That's fear in, in you that you always want to show that you're thinking something. or And I bristle at those kinds of directions where it's like, I really, that he's telling you some weird news. So I want you to be like, hmm. I'm like, really?
0: Yeah. Like, and Thinking my in character is so important and uh oh my God and yeah. just
1: those facial tics to try and show displeasure or whatever everyone knows it's kind of goofy and um but there's another scene that is and you're this historian gentle. so you'll know this um Bad news Bears
2: mm-hmm.
1: the director is uh Michael Ritchie so. Again, another movie that would be very difficult to make nowadays, right? Almost.
0: Oh, God, yes.
1: Yeah. And, um, oh, man, so phenomenal. Such an amazing film. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where Walter Matthau, these kids have been looked down upon and kicked on and made fun of. And they're just the, you know, they're the dregs. And they're finally doing something. They're finally, like, looking like they can win this thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this one kid who just wants to try to hit, and he's like, get hit by a pitch, lean into it. And the kids, like, I don't, I don't know. And he doesn't. He swings and he gets out. And Walter Mathau throws him into the wall of the dugout. And he's like, God damn it! When I tell you, and he's being an, a vicious adult to a mm-hmm. child without pretending. He throws him into the wall. He goes for it, and these kids are all looking at him, and they're just. There's 700 different levels of emotion going on and their judgment and their, and there's no need. They're not telegraphing a single thing. And Richie is so trusting to be like, I can play this through the minds of these ch- children.
0: Yeah. And Matthau is so next level.
1: Yeah. So next level. And when he starts feeling that, the power, the energy from those collective looks and mm-hmm. thoughts And it stops him and it makes him realize, and I'm like, that's filmmaking. And I know it's so hard to describe to people, but I feel like with certain people coming up, I'm like, you should watch this scene and you should trust the human face. And I have to say that to myself because there's so many times I do things, so many times where I feel like pretty janky, um, you know, uh, not honest. Um, There are those things too where you get, you know you get dialogue late and you're like I'm working so hard to try and be spot on the next day to yeah. respect writer and then you're just like was I man I feel like I was just nailing words and I wasn't swimming in it and living in it but
0: um isn't that yeah. all art though I feel like I I'm not say. done writing anything like you know 10 years later I'll read something and be like oh why did I write it like that yeah I think that's all Absolutely.
1: art um I, I yeah and I'm learning I'm just you know, I'm just trying to learn. so when I, I I really weirdly try not to be critical, I try to be really praising of people's attempts at making art or films. Yeah. And stuff like that. Mm-hmm. it's so easy to be. I know when we were in college, we used to hate watch a ton of stuff just because of like, yeah, we would watch things. and I have to say it's true. Like we would watch some super goofy moment and my friend Clay Tarver, who I love a lot, and I would look at each other and say, Dude, after that take, first of all, that was direction given by someone to another human being. They did it. And after they did it and they called cut, they high fived and said, we got it. And now we're watching it and it's the jankiest thing we've ever seen, you know? And then you realize, man, it's a lot. It's easy from the sidelines of the fight. Yeah. To poke fun at the combatants, right? Like, and, and there are times where it makes me angry because I think it is low common denominator stuff. And you should have you should strive for a bit more you should believe mm-hmm. in the audience a bit more or if you have the money to make a film and you have a good crew like you're always getting a the thing is the technical side of it the crews the sound mixers the gaffers the grips the the cinematographers they will do great stuff yeah if, you know they're there it could be it could be Power Rangers or it could be Schindler's List or whatever a lot of times you have very talented people making, all oh companies. absolutely, yeah. and so they're there at your service if you can just be like, let's go, let's go deeper. Now that being said, a, a ton of the really great movies I like, like this Sporting Life, were commercial failures.
0: I and, know, yeah,
1: and we're are hard to finance. And I respect people writing checks to make movies, but um, I still thank God, and, and I thank God, like Ken Loach. Is what we were talking about earlier. Ken Loach is an acorn from the oak tree of the early British New Wave moment you know, yeah. movement, and and he made so many of my favorite films. My name is Joe Beam. I was going
0: to bring that up. You recommended it. I checked it out. It was wonderful. I when I was watching it, I posted like I'm watching it, and got a reply within the first five minutes of my post from like Alessandro Navola, who said that is one of the best film performances of all time. Yeah, And uh, yeah, so it's definitely an actor's movie for sure.
1: Yeah. And you, you know, it's It's um, excellent. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of different things in there as someone who's kind of been around the block with alcoholism and stuff and to see the way this particular thing is. Yeah. Dealt within that film in a way like, oh my God, this is so real. And
0: mm-hmm. when you
1: see someone who's in recovery, and then they just like they're this man was Peter Mullen's character is between such a rock and a hard place, oh which is gosh. the greatest thing in life, right? Yeah. Like, but you're doing the right you're, yes, you're hurting someone, but Are you, but you're helping someone and the, you know, the, his girlfriend, social worker can't understand it's black and white for her. Yeah. You know, if you deal in, if you help the syndicate with their drug dealing stuff and it's like, no, I'm trying to save this kid from getting his legs broken. And when he's like enough and he drinks Mm -hmm. and you see that the wraith take over and he's a different human being. And you're like, oh, my God, I didn't trust you when you told me how you were when you used to drink. Yeah. And now I'm seeing how you told me how ugly it was. And I didn't believe you. I believe you. But he's such a, he's so brilliant. And Ken Loach is, you know, he makes um, he just makes wonderful movies. I remember another movie, an early movie of his with Robert Carlyle. That was phenomenal movie. Um,
0: God, he's made so many good ones. Um, When the Chicks the Barley. Sorry, we missed you. When the Chicks the Barley.
1: Best best Irish movie of all time.
0: Bread and Roses, Sweet 16. They're all good. And all of these filmmakers have inspired so many others like Andrea Arnold. I can't imagine we would have her or her film Fish Tank without Ken Loach. I mean, yeah.
1: Or Lynn Ramsey.
0: Lynn Ramsey, yes. Shane
1: Meadows. Yeah. One of my favorite filmmakers, Shane Meadows. Did Shane do This Is
0: England? This is England, yep. My kids,
1: my son Finn, the older one, he's a real cinephile. Yeah. uh, And he's a skater and uh, writes beats and stuff. And um, his crew is pretty hilarious in both New York and LA, skating kids like, and it, the most ridiculous thing, because they're all, they're great kids. And, and they come from, a lot of these kids come from pretty hard backgrounds mm. and I'll come back and I'll hear something and I'll go down the hallway and there'll be eight of them in a room, um, smoking and watching this is England. And they're like, Oh, thanks. Thanks. Mr. Lope for this record And cause it's brilliant. Yeah. And another performance by a, a a young person that you can't believe is someone is capable of, mm-hmm. and and the love and difficulty of raising. Ch- oh man, just oh, looking for family when you have no family, and family
2: is yeah
0: is- your choice, not just born into it. You can make your own family, and yeah, what all that means.
1: This yeah. is England is is thrilling to watch because it's like everybody's so good in it. You're like, what's it like to be around that environment where the game level is so high all the time? And I know the times that I've been around something like that, I can feel it. Makes such a. It's so different, and um, I'm just so thankful that they made films like that. Uh, and yes. I do think that they came from. They were given permission. That they were—it's a confirmation of a suspicion that they had that these films are necessary was given to them by Tony Richardson and Lindsay Anderson, who was a film critic to begin with, by the way. I mm-hmm. think so. Yes, you can be a film critic and
0: Truffaut, Godard, all those guys were. Yeah, the yeah right? Yes. Bogdanovich, um, yeah, all these people were.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: and then.
1: One thing. One thing, and and John Osborne, I just want to give a shout out to for being such a tremendous, yes, playwright. Um, but the entertainer, was yeah, we kind of glossed over that. Yeah, that's a good movie. movie. Where you know Laurence Olivier plays this kind of cheesy bottom billion. Um, Oh my Best, god! And
0: Joan Plowright is in there,
1: uh, and she's phenomenal.
2: Yes, Everybody,
1: Albert Alan Finney, Bates, Alan Bates, Albert Finney Alan plays. Bates, his, yes, Albert Bates, you know Al- Albert Finney plays his son who gets is shipping off to Egypt and um yeah,
2: for the,
1: the Suez, yeah, the Suez crisis, and um but what I, I couldn't believe how phenomenal it was when I first saw it because I there's such a t- there's such an. In- there's a kind of English cleverness that dances between true pathos and also like cleverness, like that yeah. with Dale and I is an example of.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yes. Right? That genius of, oh, how yeah. clever and funny, but oh my God, how emotionally moving at the same time. Yeah. And then this, you've got this cheese ball. Granted, like he does cheesy shit. He, his comedy is sh- sticky and cheesy. And he's playing in front of. Um, quarter-filled houses of fairly disinterested people, but not completely, which is...
0: No, that's an important distinction because he still has enough. He's hanging on. He can, you know, judge the beauty pageants because he's always on the make. Yes.
1: He's on the make. Although it's interesting because... I remember when I was back in England in the early 70s or 70s, and you'd watch like English sitcoms at the time and stuff. And it was so like, oh, man, this stuff is unbelievably goofy. And um, But there was even in, uh, what was it, in Kess, which is a scene that's repeated throughout all the movies that we're talking about. There's a Friday night in a pub. Yep. Where mom's with some guy who's trying to kiss her and it's uncomfortable while the kids are somewhere else in the pub on the make, and everybody who works at a factory and is grinding it out has a coat and tie because that's just the style. Yes. Yeah. And um and the guy's singing some song, and he's like, Ooh, that's the biggest one I've ever seen.
2: Yeah. And it's
1: this entendre stuff about. Yeah, it jokes, essentially. And you're and but people are legitimately howling old ladies and stuff. And there were a yeah. t- entertainer where he's doing the same sticky stuff like I've played in front of the Duke, of of yeah. Wales, the Queen, all those pubs or whatever. Yeah. And, and you're like, bam. And then it goes into the hard stuff, you know, mm-hmm. broken marriages.
0: He's playing England, essentially. That's what I read. He's playing like the death of England or old glory. Yes.
1: So amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. And I I have such a different, I just read this Eric Larson book, The Splendid and the Vile," about Winston Churchill. Yeah, you were posting
0: about that. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, understanding that kind of that journey that England's taken and it's so I talked to my parents I've lived in it in my mind in a weird way for a long time because um just writing this thing and trying to understand my parents and understanding like talking to my mom about living in Kenya right before independence and living in Nigeria when it gained independence and like this period of a few years where like 50 you know so many African countries gained independence over their colonial the the gnarliness of colonialism and watching the English Empire um, barely, you know, make it out of World War Two and have that and then yet start to fall apart and crumble. And what is England and what this weird specter that England's played in our lives and and our my family who are Irish and their lives. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that glory day that was England and those when the holiday when those towns like Brighton and just like Mona Lisa, I mean, there's,
0: Oh my God. I love that film.
1: There's yeah. a reason why those kind of decrepit Coney Island st- style towns
2: mm-hmm.
1: that have seen way past or way past their glory days. Yes. Are, are so powerful and quadruple. places
0: character. Yeah. They're a yeah, symbol. Mm-hmm.
1: A symbol. And, um, but in this film, Yes. Yeah, Quadrophenia, another phenomenal film.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: here, where Archie, he's he's on the make. He's he's on the make because he's falling apart. He's an inveterate, like he's he's just he's a. One thing about England that was interesting too is you can't just be one. You can't just be a grifter. You you do time in debtors' prison. If Mm -hmm. you want to keep, and in this, there's a constant theme of people running away from bills, like in A Taste of Honey, they always have, it's like you burn whoever the landlord is and then you just, you get so used to just having to boogie Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: boogie. Like the mom kept dragging her around everywhere because she was escaping creditors. Yeah. And Archie's constantly on the run from creditors, but he has the love his oldest son looks up to his
0: son looks up to him. His other son's off fighting the war. Um, his daughter's trying to hold him together. There's the grandpa he can't live up to. And once you know that the grandpa was an entertainer and he's trying to live up to that, you start to see him. He's kind of like a middle child almost. Yeah. and uh, the the whole thing where he has a second wife who, sees through and knows all about the affairs. And he kind of is one of those characters where you see it in films all the time. And in real life, sometimes where um, a man kind of trying to hold on a younger woman looking at him. And there's that good monologue in Moonstruck that John Mahoney has about sometimes you look up and you see a face and what I'm, I'm just this old gas bag, but what I'm saying is completely new to her. And she's looking at me like with that Um, gaze where it kind of fills him with what he could be or what he was and so you see that with Olivier and also his character is just trying to use uh, this young woman's mom uh, to fund uh, his next thing he's like (laughs) I'm doing a new performance yeah
1: yeah. and at the Winter Garden or wherever Yes, there's a part what she does yes you're right she needs a break and it is about breaks yeah he got second place in this beauty pageant but (laughs) and I love that it's second show and I think that and and then when the father out of a sense of goodness just tells no no he can't he can't he can't get married to your daughter he's married already Yes. and then his life falls apart I know and then it's just tragedy after tragedy and his Something tragic happens with his son. I don't well, we'll spoil things, Sure. Right? Like
2: yeah. his
0: son dies and um adios they, Albert Finney, yes.
1: He's with he's with the young woman, the beauty contestant that he's trying to engineer the financing of his yeah. to keep himself above water and play along with her dreams, and she falls in love with him. And yeah. then they hear on the radio that I think they hear on the radio that the guys in Egypt are now safe. And so he has that's this true. Moment, yeah. And he's like, yes, I do love you. And uh, my son is safe. And then he's at the theater when everything is falling apart. And he finds out that that's not true, that his son was killed.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: he does. He sings this American blues number. Oh, he mm-hmm. does something which in anyone else's hands could be like, oh. But it's a little blocky, so, but it is. Oh, my oh. God. It's a, it's a punch in the heart. Yeah. And then it doesn't end there because after that, Ab wants to be like, I'm going to help you out. Then they're off in London. And then the old theater, the Bialystocks of London or Max, you know, yeah, yeah. The
0: producers um, are like,
1: Oh, are you back in the theater? And he's like, Oh dude, you are the, you are the, you are the acorn. He is the tree. Yes. He is the root. Yeah. Yeah you're the Don Swayze trying to follow in Patrick's, you know, like I don't mean anything against Don Swayze. No, no, no. He's actually quite a cool guy, but I do think that it's a tough journey to wander in the shadow of a big tree, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: Um. sorry, Don, that's dickish, but I, I didn't know, you know, but I used to think it, it, it's like presents a, it's, it's, it's difficult. And there's even with father's, you know, I had a, I had a friend who was like dealing with problems with his kids. And I certainly have, as I'm a dad and single dad, and you know, man, like it magnifies things like the shadow, the, the, the shadow of trees is a difficult thing sometimes for, for someone you're trying to, you know, for me, artistically, and I'm a tiny speck in this world of of the arts or whatever but i was like man i don't have to compete with anything from my family i'm just you know we were just we lived on the 1700 block of sandalwood in el centro california like oh, there was <laughs> no oh your father did and i watched his and yeah your mother was such a um you know and it must be but
0: like the pens the- for example like um arthur Penn, and then go down the line to sean Penn, and you know, living up to the family name, and yeah,
1: I mean it. But there was a weird thing, like my friend Jesse Peretz, who's a really great director. And you know,
2: yeah.
1: i I was a road, you know, I was a roadie for the Lemonheads for Jesse's band, and I was a road manager for Bullet La Volta, my friend Clay's band. And Jesse, Clay, and I started doing the Cab Driver, our little punk rock comedy spots for MTV together. And our careers kind of started together, and Jesse. Did Jesse
0: direct those?
1: Yeah, Jesse I and I did Clay.
0: not know that. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: And the, we came up with it absolutely, like, together. Like, there
0: would be no... Jimmy the cab driver without... it wouldn't
1: be without Jesse and Clay. Absolutely. Because I used to goof around as in character all the time
0: oh, in college so and stuff. Funny.
1: But I would never be like, I have an idea to frame it in this way and to do it this way. And also the aesthetic that Jesse and Clay had, because... Similarly it's all bleached to we out about.
0: it was such a good yeah it just you knew and, right away you know, like we were. we were
1: shooting people in the back seat same thing because they realized if we told people man this guy yeah he's really annoying and like you're stuck in a cab with the guy and people were like oh huh you yeah know, the, o- the only way to fight people trying to act and to act poorly is to say, um, Hey, we have to drive around four blocks and we're not going to start rolling until we get around the, so we got to go around like a mile and, and they'd be like, Oh, okay. And then they'd sit in the back of the cab in their own thoughts. And that's. That's all. That's when you would go. That's when you would go because you're capturing them in the beautiful moment of an internalized, internalized moment in person. But um jesse you know i would jesse would come across a really great novel or something and i'm like oh man how'd you get you know And so many book recommendations i was turned on by was like oh my teacher chuck talley at central union high school super brilliant guy and he's like you got to read catch 22 or herman hesse or you'd like this
2: yeah
1: flowers for algernon or um and I'd say, yeah, just,
0: I should say Donald was a big reader from like childhood on Mr. War and peace as a child. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but what, isn't it phenomenal? What reading? Oh my God. Um, yeah. But I, Jesse, I would ask Jesse, how did you get turned on to this thing? And he's like, like, Oh, you know, he's friends with my mom and dad or, you know, like he was at one of those houses that had, you know, Joan Didion and people as as yes. dinner party guests, you know, and so in a way, I don't think Jesse ever saw it as like a shadow in which he had to establish himself. What Well, one thing was being in a successful rock band is like
2: yeah.
1: that's there's no no one's granting you any favors from that world. Like either people are going to dig your punk music or they're not but Mm -hmm. I do think that he was around a lot of artists who had made a decision to be a self-described artist, which is something that was non-existent where I came from. There were no people who were like, I will, Oh yeah, I'll do this in music or, um, in acting or the arts or whatever. I can't, I mean, I know Cher was from my hometown, but she split early and doesn't really talk about it. Um, but it's weird, you know, like that idea of like, can you do this? Can I make this? Can I be part of this? And and I don't know. It would be interesting to see what – it made me want to dive into Olivier more deeply because –
0: I have never been a super big fan of Olivier. And so watching this, it made me think, wait a minute, this is the guy who was Wuthering Heights. And it did make me kind of want to go back because I found him a little too stagey and a little more classical. We uh, talked
1: about that, right, Jen? I think so. Yeah. When when you watched King Lear, the Russian. Yes,
2: the Russian version. You watched
1: the Russian version of King Lear and you're like, man, this is stuff. Yeah. Like the You're like, you have to watch the Russian
0: one. And I'm like,
1: what? And then you watch the English, you watch the BBC version. With the tights. Olivier on the stage with tights. And you're like, God dang, man, that is Shakespeare.
0: I know which version Shakespeare would dig. Um, You know what was interesting, this going far afield, but when I watched uh, King Lear, I was thinking about Brana and his Hamlet and thinking he probably took more from this King Lear than um some of the earlier Olivier uh performances maybe a little but I do think
1: when I he's like
0: a mix maybe
1: maybe when I went to drama school in England briefly in the late 80s there was talk in that world when you meet the kind of theater professionals who are legit people Mm -hmm. I remember Diana Quick who's one of my favorite like amazing actor actress but um she was like, you know, Shakespeare does this, the goofy tights thing that was going on for a long time, the rarefied stuff, you know, she was like Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet were teenagers. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. and this is, and, and, you know, I think when Brona came up, there was so much awareness that that kind of goofiness, that, that there was this goofiness to it, that they had to get away from. And that's one thing. Uh, you know, when the when the English stuff is too clean and it's too aware and it's, I don't know, it's so bizarre. Because as Americans, when you're growing up in the desert or somewhere, and I can, I guess I'll speak for myself, but I think that this was kind of a common thing. When I got to college and started doing plays and we danced into the classics, mm-hmm. people would get transatlantic-y all of a sudden because there was something about an accent that, they were like, this adds legitimacy to something.
0: Yeah. hmm
1: And um, and it's wrong and it's fake. <laughs> it's hard not to give in to that thing. And then secondly, but like in when we look at this English kitchen sink drama thing, it was kind of like it took the BBC years to latch on to this, but it was it's okay. American television still hasn't in news, they still have this hi, I'm Jerry Ramsey. They (laughs) they still teach people this jive way to speak because they're like, that's all people can. They can't deal with regional accents.
0: Yeah. I remember going to a journalism youth conference and somebody was talking about um, how they know where everybody studied or everybody talks the same way, no matter where you are in the country. And yeah, it's 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 creepy. Yes. Yeah. And
1: this, you know, with this new wave, they were like, your accent is
0: beautiful. Like even they used the phrase like you can dirty it up when they were talking to the kids for Kess, like make it real. I mean, you don't know what the hell is going on. Like uh, Roger Ebert talked about that, that the movie didn't open in Chicago because um, some distributor in America said that Hungarian is easier to understand than what what's going on in Kess. And so it didn't play everywhere. And uh, so Ebert was admitting that, yeah, the the language. And for a little bit, watching it this time, like, you know, I put on the... What I love so much watching these, especially on Criterion, is it's kind of like watching Bob Hoskins in Long Good Friday, where you don't know what the fuck he's saying, like, half the time. And so you turn on the closed captioning when you're watching the Kitchen Sink dramas, and they actually just, in parentheses, put, like... um, indecipherable indecipherable something yeah. like that and you know like they don't even know what they're saying and yeah.
1: I love it I love kind of because it's happened to me and kess where I'm leaning in and I'm a bit deaf too now and um I'm like oh man I'm behind but I'm still I'm enthralled and yeah um
0: but you yeah. just you, you can it hits you on a different level like a deeper level a human like so, a more humanism like yeah. it translates despite language. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's been phenomenal. Like I, my doorway into, you know, my doorway into English films in the sixties. And I was not, I was really not aware of that world at all. I, I saw it started with Lawrence of Arabia, and then it branched into all of the different, you know, the David Lean kind of sprawling epics and the wild kind of 60s counterculture, like groovy London kind of stuff, the darker, the great crime drama, like Long Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, introduced me to a million actors, many of whom are my favorite the Finnies and the and Tom Courtney. And I, I just,
0: yeah, this whole period, yeah, Richard I was thinking. Burton freer's too as far as another filmmaker like you think of my beautiful laundrette and some of those movies in the 80s obviously would have come from these
1: yeah and my beautiful laundrette um the woman that played doreen in saturday night sunday morning she's in my beautiful laundrette oh wow you would see like you see um you see a lot of you see a lot of the you know i i loved watching the eventuality and the journey of a lot of these actors who got their starts in all of these films. And then later, and it was, you know, I even say like, if you watch the Harry Potter movies, like that huge cast of actors and they they all have, you know, I mean, that was a weird thing too, because it was, they had this unbelievable embarrassment of riches of all these You know, they have this zillion dollar franchise and they can say to any John Hurt or any version of any of these great actors like all. Hey, let's just get our favorite of the great English stage actors. And would you like to come play along in this franchise? Um, And, you know, but I, I love watching these things. I love watching like quadrophenia you're like, oh, Timothy Spall is playing a projectionist. It's for so
0: cool, minutes. yeah. When that happens,
2: when yeah. you see
1: these guys in their earliest roller, the the joy that I got seeing that James Fox was the kind of
2: mm-hmm. rich
1: kid in loneliness of the long distance runner who's going to be his primary opposition in this running race, and then I'm like, what happened to James Fox? And
0: yeah are you brought, I mean, we talked about long, good Friday. You see that and you see Brosnan or you see these early little roles and where these people wound up. Yeah. But I know that these were all the ones we had time for today, but before I let you go and get back to writing, are there any other kitchen sink dramas or movies in the spirit that you would like to recommend people check out?
1: Uh Let's see. Um
0: I thought of one that you recommended earlier this year that in magical realism, but kind of, was it time of the gypsies? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, time of the gypsies is, I just think it's such a phenomenal, it's such a phenomenal film and it, and it, you, you watch it of course. Yes. Can, right. And it, again, phenomenal performances from
0: young no, oh,
1: gosh. And, and the music yeah. is incredible. And it also has this comedic side to it. And of course, it's unbelievably dark side. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the cinematography is stunning, but it was also kind of low budge. And, um, you know, and I think that I'm trying to think of how to pronounce his name, Costa Rica, or, um, you know, I think that politically something weird happened following the kind of Serbian... Croatian split or something. I don't know what the politics are because I don't know if he had fallen into some kind of
2: Mm. uh,
1: outside of favor in some ways, but that being that not knowing anything about it, this, this film, the time of the gypsies is absolutely one of, I think the best films ever made. Um, Another thing that I think would be worth watching for people in terms of Uh, We mentioned My Name is Joe. I think Rat Catcher by Lynn Ramsey um, is there. I think Happy Valley, which is a television crime drama set in the Midlands, is phenomenally great writing, incredible performances, um, very real, just like kind of the best and the tastiest of English drama. I was weirded out a little bit by Mayor of Easttown because... The parallels between the two worlds were just too brutally close.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I I didn't get into that. I was
1: watching Mirror of Easttown and I'm like, oh, okay. So you were similarly inspired. You loved Happy Valley like me. (laughs) And you rewrote it and set it for Pennsylvania. Um, Okay. But also that was really good and well done. But Happy Valley was the OG of that. And um, what else would I... We've mentioned, of course, okay, Cast a Taste of Honey, Billy Liar, The Sporting Life. Um was the
0: one, Mike Newell, that you told me to see that was really good. Um, oh, Dance with a Stranger. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you watch it?
0: Yes, I loved it. Yeah.
2: Miranda Rupert Richardson. Everett,
0: my God. Rupert Miranda Everett. Richardson. Mm-hmm. Another good recommendation, Donald. Come on. <laughs> You've given the best recs.
1: There's some good ones, right? Like there's some Yeah, yeah and more more to come. Um,
0: yeah. I apologize
1: for rambling so much.
0: No. Jen. But thank you so much for doing this. You'll have to come back for another topic. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals,